So for the past couple of weeks, we started uh, the book of Galatians. So we're in week three. So if you missed week one and two, you can go back and check those out on our app or online. But we're studying through the book of Galatians, and we left off last week with Paul proving to the Galatians that his change, his call, and the gospel that he preached to them were all from Jesus. He did this because there were false teachers that were called Judaizers, that they were teaching in the church, and basically they were saying, in order to become a Christian or in order to be saved, the people had to become Jewish first. So if they were Gentiles, if they were non-Jewish, they had to become Jewish first. And the way that they became Jewish was by observing Old Testament ceremonial laws, which included circumcision. So Paul continues to tell the, the church in Galatia the events that prove the events that happened to him that prove uh, basically to the church in Galatia that Jesus is actually the truth, that these Judaizers are actually false teachers and they should not listen to their false teaching or welcome them into their church. So we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 2, and it says this, Then after 14 years... I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. So now what Paul's going to do is he starts to tell them about what happened at the Jerusalem Council. I mentioned this last week, and uh, basically the Jerusalem Council is mentioned in Acts chapter 15, or, or really recorded what happened there in Acts chapter 15. And remember, Acts is a history of the early church. So in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, Paul went to Jerusalem and uh, basically talked about how these men were spreading this false teaching. These Judaizers were spreading this false teaching. And here's what Acts 15.1 says. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Paul, he went there. He brought Barnabas with him, which Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. And anytime you see Barnabas in the scriptures, he always seems to have a role of encouragement. He was like kind of like that guy that you wanted to be around. So basically, Paul went up to Jerusalem to talk to the early church leaders. So here's what happens. Paul continues back in Galatians. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential. And he's talking about the early church leaders, the early apostles. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So Paul's saying, this is what I told them. I told them the gospel that I'm preaching. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul said he went up because of a revelation. Now, we could take this as the Lord. The revelation that, that came to him was from the Lord. The reason why the Lord would give the, him this revelation was because the church in Jerusalem was the, the first church, really. Okay, Jerusalem, Judea, and, all, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So basically what happened here is he goes up to Jerusalem because it's the Lord's church. So the Lord said, you know what, go up there, talk to these guys. This was probably the revelation that Paul received. So the church is the Lord's church. The people there are the Lord's people, and the Lord has a desire to unify his people. 
That's true today as well. The Lord wants Christians to be unified. So Paul shared this because when he met with those church leaders, in the eyes of the people in Galatia, the church in Galatia, this would kind of be validation of what he taught because the church in Jerusalem was backing him. So basically what Paul is trying to do is prove his case here. He's saying, hey, guys, I went up to Jerusalem. I talked to these church leaders, the early apostles, and they back up what I was saying. He brought Titus, a Christian Gentile, a Greek, with him as proof that a non-ceremonial law-observing Gentile can be saved. So then he goes on. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul writes about what the core issue was. These false teachers, these Judaizers, they slipped in, and their goal was to take away their freedom. Now, when you and I hear the word freedom, we, we're American, right? So we think of things like, okay, we live in a free country, we're free from slavery, we have freedom of speech, and we can list out all our freedoms that we have. But what Paul is talking about here is spiritual freedom that we can only have through Christ. So these Judaizers were trying to go and slip in and basically say, you don't have that kind of freedom. So you see, one of the main results of trusting in Jesus is spiritual freedom, meaning this, we are free from the penalty of sin. You get that? We're free from the penalty of sin. We're forgiven by God the Father because we've trusted in what Christ has done. You see, we're all sinners, and because of our sin, we're enslaved, and we're enslaved for eternity, meaning we can't be with God. But Jesus, he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. Three days later, he rose to prove that he is God and can free us from that penalty of sin and pay for our sins. And the scriptures teach us this very explicitly. All who believe will have eternal life. It's not by works, but by faith in Christ. So Paul is not saying this is something that these false teachers can take away. He's saying this is something they can distract people from believing to con them into believing something that would actually enslave them, which is following the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Now, we have to answer this question then, because we have the Old Testament, right? And we love the Old Testament. Hey, we, we don't just throw the Old Testament away. So then we have to ask, why did God give these Old Testament ceremonial laws? Because some of you might be doing the Bible in a year or have read the Bible and you get to the parts in the Old Testament and you're like, what is going on here? Why would anybody do this? Or this is crazy, right? And, you know, let's be honest. We look at this stuff and we're like, what's going on? Well, one of the main things the Old Testament ceremonial laws do is show us how impossible it is to make ourselves perfectly acceptable to God. And that is why we need Jesus. You see, all of the Old Testament happened to point us to our need for Christ, to prove to us that we are all sinners. 
to prove to us that Christ was the ultimate sacrifice once for all. There is no other work that needs to be done. He was the sacrificial lamb that paid for us. The Old Testament and all the prophecies that point to Jesus. So we don't throw the Old Testament away. We love the Old Testament. We read the Old Testament and we know in context how much the Old Testament means to where we live today and what Christ has done. Now these false teachers were actually doing the opposite of that. Essentially saying that through these ceremonial laws, you can try hard, meet your own need of salvation. In other words, I can be good enough to save myself. You realize there's people that still believe that today? I can be good enough to save myself. And you might have conversations with them, right? If there is a God, he knows that I'm a pretty good guy. If there is a God, he knows that I'm a pretty good gal. I'm not like those other people. But Paul says, to them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment. He's saying these Judaizers, we didn't listen to them, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. So basically what Paul's saying, when I went up to the Jerusalem council, I was going, dealing with these same characters that you guys are dealing with. We didn't listen to them. You shouldn't either. So if they follow these teachings, the truth would not be taught. You know, we have to realize that any false teaching has the power to hide the truth, to confuse people enough so they don't see the truth. That's why we study the scriptures. You're here today and we're in week three of Galatians. We study through verse by verse, line by line. And some people are like, that takes a long time. It does, okay? But guess what? We're not going anywhere unless Jesus comes back or we don't wake up tomorrow. So here's the thing. We study God's word line by line so we don't miss anything. So we have the whole counsel of what the truth is. But then Paul goes on to say this. And from these who seem to be influential, talking about the early leaders in the church in Jerusalem, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, meaning the Jews. See, the church leaders in Jerusalem saw the hand of the Lord on Paul at the Jerusalem council. But essentially, Paul is saying this, even if they didn't recognize it, who are they anyway? That's what Paul was saying. Even if they didn't recognize it, if they went against me and said, you can't preach that to the Gentiles, he was like, guess what? God shows no partiality. It makes no difference to me who these guys are. No one person is more important than another person in God's economy. You get that? No one person. I'm not more important than you. There's no church structure and church leaders that are more important than you are. In God's economy, no one person is more important than another person. And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, even if these early church leaders, even if the apostles, Peter, James, and John, if they didn't agree with me, guess what? I'm still preaching this because I got the message from Jesus. But since these were the earliest followers, by man's standard, the church in Galatia, it would hold some value. So Paul brings this up and he says, listen, they validated what I was saying. And they listen. So basically what he's saying is the church in Jerusalem, it backs what I'm teaching you right now. 
So then he goes on. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, to the Jews, worked also through for, for mine to the Gentiles. Then James and Cephas, which is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul is telling them, we have a blessing from the apostles of Jesus to go and preach to the Gentiles, preach the gospel. And that does not include what these Judaizers are teaching you guys. That does not include their message of following the ceremonial laws. When we go to the Gentiles, we're not going there and be like, okay, here's a deal. You have to become Jewish. Then you have to believe in Jesus. No. He was preaching a gospel by grace alone, by faith alone. Then he says, the only thing they told him differently than what he was already doing was this. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is not an addition to the gospel, but this is, you know, Paul being honest before them. Here, here's the only thing they said to me that was different, okay? This was an encouragement to living out the gospel to others, namely the poor. Do you realize this? Christians, we as Christians, are called to do good. Not because this is why God accepts us, but because this is how we follow God, by doing good. It's God called us to do good. When we do good, it shows God love. When we do good, we feel fulfillment because that's the way God designed us. When we do good, guess what? It gives us opportunities to tell others about him. It pleases God. Remember a few weeks ago, I talked about the social justice Christianity, and I said, yeah, they're doing good things. But if you don't tell people the best thing, so you do, go do good but then you forget to tell them about Jesus and how he say, I don't want to offend them and tell them Jesus is the only way. That'd be narrow-minded. I don't want to do that. Well, guess what? If you really believe Jesus saves sinners, why would you keep that to yourself? Why? Why would you ever keep that to yourself? If Jesus truly saves sinners, if you believe that and you believe it's true, why wouldn't you tell everybody? Now, all this being said, is what do we do this with this passage in 2024? we got to bring it to our lives right now because, you know, Judaizers haven't been coming through the front door here, okay? And if they did, we'd be like, yeah, we ain't having that, okay? So what does this mean for us today? Well, see, the core of what was happening here with these false teachers can actually be compared to what has happened in the Christian church in America for many years, and that is something called legalism. Some of you have heard of this before. Legalism exists when people attempt to earn righteousness in God's sight by doing good works. Okay? Legalism exists when people say, here's the rules and here's how God accepts you by these rules. Legalists believe that they can earn God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. Now, not many legalists would admit that they are legalists, but what happens is they live like that, and they expect others to live like that as well. Now, the traditional brand of legalism in America 
is more of a Bible Belt, Southern State type of Christianity in which they preach the gospel, but then they say, if you do this or don't do that, if you go here or don't go there, if you hang out with this person or don't hang out with this person, if you watch this movie or listen to this music or whatever, they make their rules. And their rules are a response to culture. So they look at the culture and they make extra rules that are not necessarily in the scriptures or the scripture doesn't even speak about, and they respond to the culture and make rules for people to live by. So basically, they would be very legalistic. They would take like their rules and say, this is what you need to follow. Now, an extreme example of this are the Amish. Now, I know you're thinking, oh, the Amish are so nice people. I hope Pastor Mike doesn't say anything bad about them. They make such nice whoopie pies. Like... <laughs> But here's what happens. They add rules and regulations in response to the culture that the Bible simply does not teach. And ultimately, it's a works-based salvation. I know I've shared this in some way, shape, or form, maybe at one of the men's things or maybe at church on Sunday, but years ago we went out to the Amish country and we were having a ride on the Amish wagon and Ezekiel, we'll call him, was the driver. And basically we were talking to him, we engaged with him in a conversation about faith. And, you know, we were talking this and that. And finally, you know, it seemed like, okay, we agree on some things here. Let's see what's going on here. And then my wife actually said, so it's by faith alone. And he was driving his wagon and he looks back and goes, and works. <laughs> what? <laughs> the dude doesn't use zippers, okay? Here's the thing. Um, obviously, he believes, they believe in legalism, okay? We add rules, we make the rules, you follow the rules. And here's the thing, when you dig a little deeper, I mean, think about it. We are gospel-centered and we preach a gospel to people to come and believe. Have you ever heard of anybody converting to be Amish? Anyone? I know somebody's gonna say to me at the door, I did. Um, <laughs> here's the thing, they don't preach the gospel, extreme version. But there's many little pockets of Christianity that lean towards legalism. This is the way we live. This is what we should do. This is, these are the things you shouldn't do. These are the things you should do. We stick to what the scriptures say. Legalists are not very gracious or welcoming to unbelievers, and they try to motivate people by guilt and shame. And those, those people, if they don't listen to those rules or follow those rules, the legalist will automatically jump to doubting that person's salvation. If they, don't, if they make mistakes, they might even say that person might not be a Christian. The general view is that people need to clean up their act to come to Jesus. You see how this is wrong, okay? If they have come to Jesus and they don't clean up their act, they might not be a believer at all. See, legalism, here's what legalism says. I make the extra rules because I can work to earn favor in God's eyes. Let me just tell you this. The focus here is on I. God has a moral law, right? Is there enough in there for us? Do we need any extras? No. So 
Now, this is not popular in our area and not popular in this current culture. You realize that. So you're thinking, okay, the Judaizer things, I'm good. We're not going that way. Legalism, that sounds unfun. Okay? So we look and say, okay, where's our culture going? So mostly people would not gravitate towards legalism in our culture today, in our area today, because it seems like old school religion, which is not very attractive. But what is popular today is probably because the pendulum is swinging, okay? So legalism is over here. The pendulum starts swinging. It obviously doesn't stop in the middle. It goes all the way over here, and it goes to a thing called liberalism, okay? And I'm not talking about being politically liberal, although somebody who is politically liberal probably would be attracted to liberalism more than maybe somebody who leans more conservative. But liberalism is this an openness to new ideas. This takes the form today in something called progressive Christianity, which has become widely popular. If you listen to podcasts, listen to preachers, read books and stuff, you'll probably see this progressive Christianity and you'll think, oh, that sounds kind of progressive and nice and like, you know, moving forward. Now it seems, it may seem negative and closed minds to say, I'm not open to new ideas. And that's not what this is saying. It would be closed-minded if, in the, at face value, if our church looked at the culture and said, we will not change anything in our church based upon the culture, okay? Meaning this, we have all these ministries in our church, and some of them we've had for literally decades. We never want to look at our ministries and say, we don't want to meet the needs of the culture. We've done it this way for this many years, and we're never changing it. We're fluid with the way that we run our ministries, but what we're not fluid with is dialing back the gospel. We will never dial back the truth. The truth is always the truth. But the core of progressive Christianity is this. It broadly rejects historical views of the Bible, meaning they discard concepts like biblical inspiration, meaning God inspired the Bible, inerrancy, meaning that every word is from the mouth of God and pure and right and true, and the preservation of scriptures, meaning this, that what we have is preserved from God's mouth to us. Okay? So they would reject this. In other words, the Bible is not purely God's word. It's a semi-historical book filled with spiritual stories and allegories. So it's not all true. Some of it is, but not all of it. The problem, right, if we take the scriptures, right, and we start picking what we think is true, what happens when we get to the important part, right, the Jesus part, the fact that he died for us, the fact that salvation is only through him, now that's suspect. So if you look at the scriptures and say, well, then you have a big problem. So progressive-minded readers would attempt to insert their own ideas into the scriptures where such ideas were never meant to be found. When they can't explain a difficult scripture, they may dismiss it and say it's outdated and justify ignoring it. They would say, this is not for us. Well, obviously, you know, this is not where we lean, right? It's called progressive because they believe that we are progressing and evolving. Truth is ever-changing based on the culture that we live in. It's pretty scary, right? Pretty scary. So liberalism or progressive Christianity is basically saying this. 
I make my own rules or I make my own truth. I make my own rules or I make my own truth. Legalism way over here. Pendulum swings to liberalism way over here. But do you see the common denominator? Anyone see the common denominator? I. I make the rules. Me. You know, many of you, and I encourage you to do this, you listen to different maybe podcasts, read Christian authors, listen to other pastors. I encourage that all the day long if you're being fed. But we never say, this is my guy. I'll follow this guy no matter what. We never say that. Never say that about me and never say that about any celebrity, author, pastor, whatever. We don't follow people. We follow Jesus. Now, remember back in the first 10 verses that we studied? Paul said a couple of things. He, said, he kept saying things like, these men seemed influential. Who they are makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. We didn't yield to their teaching. Do you know what Paul was saying? Reject the I, okay? Reject the people, okay? It's not about the people. It's about Jesus. The reason Paul said these things is because he wanted the church in Galatia to realize the focus should never be on I or me. The focus should always be on Jesus. See, when the focus is on the people, the result is legalism, liberalism, or any other kind of ism that's going to come out in the future because there will be more. The focus needs to be on Jesus. See, the legalist needs to realize that Jesus did everything necessary on the cross to offer the gift of salvation. There's no extra work we can do or we need to do. The legalist needs to realize that God has moral laws, different than the ceremonial laws, moral laws which a believer in Christ should live by because it shows Jesus' love. But not only that, it's his design and his best way for us. So when you read the moral laws in the Bible, you look and say, okay, maybe I don't like that. Maybe I don't want to follow that. But that's God's best for me. God loves me so much, he's actually giving me parameters and saying, Mike, do this. This is my best for you. The legalist also needs to realize that when we teach things like legalism to others, they're trying to steal the freedom that people can have in Christ, and they're not living in the freedom that they have in Christ, and they're keeping people from having true faith. Now, the liberalist needs to realize there's one truth, and his name is Jesus. Truth doesn't progress. Okay. He doesn't change. You're not making progress by moving away from God's word. You're just confusing yourself and other people. Liberalist needs to realize that God has moral laws, which as a believer in Christ, we should live by because it pleases the Lord, but it's his best design for us. The liberalist also needs to realize that when we teach others, when they teach others their liberalism, they're hiding the truth of Jesus they're hiding what can only be found in Jesus. You see how this complicates things? Because now, right, in this world, we're not only dealing with those who don't believe in Jesus, we're dealing with legalists and liberalists, people who say they believe in Jesus, but then they add all these extra things or take away things that are important, and they have the appearance of belief, but they're misleading people. So now you and I as Christians, now I don't only have to deal with like the unbelieving world, but now I have to believe, deal with people that are saying they're believers, but they're messing other people up. 
And that's what Paul was dealing, these Judaizers. He was like, this is like a mess. You guys got caught up with these teachers. Now, this can make us feel like we're fighting a battle that we can't win, that we're walking through this alone. Now, Paul deals with our feelings in Romans. And as we close, I'm not going to close in prayer today. What I want to close in is I want you to close your eyes and bow your head, and I want you to just listen to Romans 8, 31 through 39. So close your eyes, bow your heads, and I'm going to read this passage. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.